the light of the whole world. That same night, in amongst the other stars, suddenly a bright new star appeared. Of all the stars in the dark vaulted heavens, this one shone clearer. It blazed in the night and made the other stars look pale beside it. God put it there when his baby son was born, to be like a spotlight, shining on him, lighting up the darkness, showing people the way to him. You see, God was like a new daddy. He couldn't keep the good news to himself. He'd been waiting all these long years for this moment, and now he wanted to tell everyone. So he pulled out all the stops. He'd sent an angel to tell Mary the good news. He'd put a special star in the sky to show where his boy was. And now he was going to send a big choir of angels to sing his happy song to the world. He's here. He's Come, go and see him, my little boy. Now, where would you send your splendid choir? Hmm? To a big concert hall, maybe? Or a palace, perhaps? Now, God sent his to a little hillside, outside a little town, in the middle of the night. He sent all those angels to sing for a raggedy old bunch of shepherds watching their sheep outside Bethlehem. In those days, remember, people used to laugh at shepherds and say they were smelly and call them other rude names, which I can't possibly mention here. You see, people thought shepherds were nobodies, just scruffy old riffraff. But God must have thought shepherds were very important indeed because they are the ones he chose to tell the good news to first. Well, that night, some shepherds were out in the open fields, warming themselves by a campfire, when suddenly the sheep darted. They were frightened by something. The olive trees rustled. What was that? A wing beat? They turned round. Standing in front of them was a huge warrior of light, blazing in the darkness. Don't be afraid of me, the bright shining man said. I haven't come to hurt you. I've come to bring you happy news for everyone, everywhere. Today, in Davidstown, in Bethlehem, God's son has been born. You can go and see him. He is sleeping in a manger. Behind the angel, they saw a strange glowing cloud. Except it wasn't a cloud. It was angels, troops and troops of angels armed with light. And they were singing a beautiful song. Glory to God, to God be fame and honour and all our hoorays. Then, as quickly as they appeared, the angels left. The shepherds stamped out their fire, left their sheep, raced down the grassy hill, through the gates of Bethlehem, down the narrow cobbled streets, through a courtyard, down some steps, 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 past an inn, round a corner, through a hedge, until at last they reached a tumble down stable. They caught their breath. 
Then quietly, they tiptoed inside. They knelt on the dirt floor. They had heard about this promised child, and now he was here. Heaven's son, the maker of the stars, a baby sleeping in his mother's arms. This baby would be like that bright star shining in the sky that night, a light to light up the whole world, chasing away darkness, helping people to see. And the darker the night got, the brighter the star would shine. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you're with us online, and if you're guest with us this morning, hitting this service or down in F3, glad you're uh, joining with us. Make sure you stop by in the foyer, and we have a gift for you after the service, so glad you're here. Last week, we had a little health crisis with one of our members here. I'm glad to report Joe is fine, doing well, so um, I guess uh, not eating breakfast and listening to a boring speaker can do a number on you, so, uh, but we're glad glad you're doing well. Hey, take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We read it earlier, the Newland family up here in F1. Luke chapter 2. Um, it, it's it, interesting, the, the four Gospels, Luke's account is, well, John doesn't mention a birth narrative at all, or Mark's account. I mean, this crucial of all events of human history, the coming of, of the Son of God into the world, the incarnation. Um, Matthew mentions it with only eight verses. But Luke is the one, and he was a medical doctor, but he was also uh, a pretty good historian, I would say, and he had researched these things, he said in chapter one, and he wrote them down. And uh, so it's Luke's account that gives us uh, this full account. I hope that sometime uh, Thursday night or, or Christmas day that uh, you will pick up this account again and, and read it if, uh, to whoever is uh, in your midst and, and uh, fellowshipping with you this Christmas. Um, this is the account that has been given to us of the incarnation, of the coming of uh, the birth of, of Jesus. Now, I'm fascinated by the people involved in this birth narrative. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now in the days, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken. And verse 2 says this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So the first people that we're introduced to in this account uh, are the power people of the day. I mean, there was no one more powerful than Caesar Augustus, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, the adoptive son of Julius Caesar. He came to power over the Roman Empire in 27 B.C. until his death in A.D. 14. And um, he was the hand-picked successor to Julius Caesar. I mean, this guy was on the top of his game. The, when Jesus was born, uh, he was uh, at the top of his game. He was the top of the ladder of, of uh, of human society, Caesar Augustus. And even today, we still, uh, we still acknowledge him. We have a whole month out of our calendar year named for him, August, Caesar Augustus. Um, a powerful person. He was often referred to as Savior. He was the one who secured the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, 
His power over that empire was uh, second to none. And, um, and yet, how interesting that this most powerful of people was, a, was merely a pawn in the hand of Almighty God. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Uh, Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth, up north in Galilee. How are they going to get to Bethlehem? Well, uh, verse 1, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, a census was to be taken, and verse 3, everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, and that's how Joseph and Mary ended up in Bethlehem. God used the most powerful person, Caesar Augustus, a mere pawn in the hand of the Almighty to move his, do his will so that fulfilled prophecy would take place. Caesar Augustus. And then there was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. There's a name for you. Um, there's some interesting things we learn about Quirinius uh, in human history that's been preserved for us. Uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes about him. Um, colorful person and a very important person. Uh, he was well known in the echelons of society in Rome and uh, became uh, a council of, of Syria in 12 BC, was um, uh, known for his military prowess, uh, was a great military leader. Again, well known in the power circles of, of Rome. There's some gaps historically. Uh, we know that Quirinius was also a, had a governorship in that area in um, around 686, uh, and he did another census. Um, they haven't dug up yet a, 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 some type of a historical explanation of uh, this reign of his. He probably co-reigned, it says, with Quincilius Varus, a kind of a co-governorship of Syria. But he's a real guy with real power. And when Luke mentions in verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, people would have, back then reading this, would have said, oh, oh, Quirinius. We know that guy. Um, he made the tabloids in Rome. In fact, his second wife tried to poison him, but that's another story. Um, so Luke anchors this story in this secular setting with these very powerful people. They factored into this story account. Caesar Augustus and Publius Sulpius Quinius, uh, Quirinius. Um, powerful people. Then, of course, there's Joseph and Mary. If Caesar Augustus was on the top of the ladder of human society, Joseph and Mary were certainly down around the first step or two of the ladder, poor, insignificant people, um, peasants. Um, uh, there was no uh, big bright lights when their name was found. Um, insignificant commoners, in an insignificant uh, little village called Nazareth. Nazareth, probably not much more than the hometown I grew up in, about maybe 500 people, if that. Um, my wife Lisa's from, we, we grew up, both grew up in Nebraska. She grew up in a town about 30 miles away, Wayne, Nebraska. There was a college there, Wayne State College. We all knew about Wayne because we'd go up there for different clinics and different things, the band clinics and stuff we did. Everybody knew about Wayne. 
I was deeply hurt when I married her to find out she had no idea what Bancroft, Nebraska was, just 30 miles away, because it was a little insignificant town in the middle of nowhere. Well, that was Nazareth. It wasn't on some major route of, of trade. It was off the beaten track, a very insignificant little town. In fact, when Jesus um, uh, made his first kind of public appearance on the scene, he was calling his disciples, uh, he connected with Nathaniel, and um, by the way, here's a, I forgot to throw up good old Julius Caesar, or Augustus, Caesar Augustus. That was a, a um, uh, statue that was found in 1863, uh, dug up, and uh, that's what the, the big man in uh, the uh, Roman Empire looked like. Well, when Jesus is calling his disciples, uh, Nathaniel connects with them, and Nathaniel goes and finds his friend Philip, and he said, Philip, or Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, now th there's kind of a, two points to that. Messiah was to come from Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, and right outside of Jerusalem there. Nazareth? So it's kind of a backhanded state. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, there's no Messiah in Nazareth. Second of all, it, it was just a kind of a little spot on a map, if that. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Let me give you a little bit more uh, background to, uh, to Nazareth. In the second century B.C., the Jews in Palestine were being brutalized uh, by the power, the secular power of the day, this um, Seleucid Empire. It was part of the breakup of uh, Alexander the Great when he died and his four generals and they divided up his empire and the Seleucid Empire uh, controlled this region. And uh, they were very... Um, unhospitable and, and very uh, wicked towards the, the Jewish people uh, until the Maccabeans revolted and um, threw off that, that power and uh, took control. They fought and took control of Jerusalem and Judea, and for the next several decades they would expand their influence up to the north, the regions uh, around Jerusalem, Judea, and it brought them up to the area north of, called the Galilee. And um, Aristobulus, who was the, the, the Jewish leader at that time, in order to solidify kind of the power of, uh, of, of Jews in that time, uh, sent Jewish settlers up to that region to develop these settler towns. And Nazareth was one of those settler towns, and that's how they would want to control the, the area. Um, we see it today in modern Israel, the, the settlements on the West Bank. Uh, well, hundreds, a couple thousand years ago, they were doing that. Uh, and the Maccabeans, they put these settler towns and uh, put these very, uh, very strongly nationalistic Jewish settlers in these communities and uh, around all the, the Gentile area. And um, Nazareth was one of those. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, we won't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 talks about Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, 
So Nazareth was uh, populated by some pretty strong, fiercely nationalistic uh, people, Jewish through and through. This was the heritage of Joseph and Mary. They were from this settler town, Nazareth, in the Galilee. Um, now, we know from our story, we know from uh, the celebration of Christmas for uh, decades, for as long as we've been alive, that Mary and Joseph were in a pretty precarious situation. Joseph, verse 4, went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. That's a really, really embarrassing phrase. Engaged and with child. The marriage had not been consummated. Um, uh, it's a very scandalous situation. And yet together they make this three-day trek heading south to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem because it's on the hills. And uh, they had to do it because Caesar Augustus had required this census to be taken. Uh, if, you, if you would permit me just for a, a moment to make maybe a, a little correction in our, in our Christmas story. I don't want to shatter our, our uh, warm feelings of, of the, the stable and, you know, the story. They, they come into Bethlehem at late at night. You know the story. We see it, then we hear it. Um, and there's no place in any of the hotels. There's no room at the end, and yet one kind innkeeper says, well, I do have my stable. If you need some cover, you know, you can go to the stable, and there and that night Jesus is born. Probably not exactly what happened, and here's why. Here's just a couple of things um, to mention that. Ver look at verse 6. They go up, Mary's engaged, uh, Joseph and Mary are engaged, they're with child, and verse 6 says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. While they were there, the days were completed. Uh, it wasn't that Mary and Joseph arrived that night, couldn't find a place, found a stable, and she had the baby. Um, while they were there, they may have been in Bethlehem for a few days, maybe a few weeks. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Um, they had been there for some time. Second of all, uh, what it says there um, in verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, no room for them in the inn. The word for inn is a word, kataluma. There are other, there's another word for, for a commercial inn. This isn't it. This word, kataluma, means a guest room, a guest room. Um, when Jesus and his disciples, when they, were look, when they were looking for a place for the Passover meal, the last supper for Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 11 records, uh, Jesus says, and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the kataluma, the guest room, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Where's your, where's your guest room in the house? the Cataluma. Um, this is maybe what a typical 
this is a rough drawing, but it maybe typical little first century home in, uh, in Bethlehem would have looked like. You had your main living area, uh, which part of it would have been a, a cataluma, a, a guest room. That, it might have been up in the upper level as well. But that C area there to the left, that it's called animal living area, that was the place where um, you would bring your animals in at night. It was a little lower from the main floor, uh, a little off it, but uh, right there, kind of an all-open area, and uh, there would be little uh, places for the animals to eat, the mangers, the, the, where the food would be placed. But it was all part of this big living area. Um, so probably Mary and Joseph had a place to go, um, but because it was a census time and there might have been a lot of people and various things going on, uh, the Cataluma, the guest room, was busy and they needed some privacy. And so they went over to where the animals were. And baby Jesus was born and was placed right there in that room. Um, well, whatever the case may be, don't lose... Let's still tell the story of there was no room in the inn and, and the, the, they had to have a little baby in the barn. Well, technically that's kind of true, but it might not be exactly how we tell it. Uh, the point is, it was humble beginnings. Humble beginnings. Who else is in this story? We've got Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, you've got the power elite of the day, you've got insignificant little peasant people from an out-of-the-way place. Um, Mary and Joseph, uh, you have the shepherds, representative of probably the lowliest of mankind, the shepherds. The opposite end of the spectrum. If Mary and Joseph were on maybe the first rung or two of the ladder, the shepherds couldn't even see the ladder. Philo, um, a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher of Alexander who wrote during the time of, of Christ, reflected of the typical in one of his writings, uh, there's a, a statement he makes about shepherds that is reflective of the kind of the typical mindset of the day. Uh, people who looked after sheep and goats, he said, such pursuits, quote, such pursuits are held mean and inglorious. Rabbinic law wouldn't even recognize shepherds uh, in the religious ordinances. They were unclean. Um... I read where shepherds were just, they were just kind of despised. You talk about from the wrong side of the tracks. Shepherds wouldn't even be trusted to, to give testimony in a court of law. They were unreliable. They were, um, they were, they were nobodies, person non gratis. Um, Ken Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, writes that there were five lists that are found in rabbinical literature detailing uh, trades and livelihoods that were viewed as unclean or condemned. And shepherds made three of those lists. Yeah, if, if Caesar, Augustus, and Quirinius were on the top and, of the ladder and Joseph and Mary were on step one or two, the shepherds were far, far from the ladder. Something else that should be noted about these shepherds Alfred Edersheim, in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says that the, the sheep that were grazing outside Bethlehem, which was very close to Jerusalem, were sheep that were raised uh, to be sacrificed in the temple. 
If that's true, how interesting that the angels appeared to the shepherds who were taking care of sacrificial lambs the very night that the sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus, was born. Well, who else is in the story? Well, in our every story whispers his name, it's the angels that come. The angels, they're messengers from God. And boy, did they ever deliver a message, right? Uh, Luke chapter 2 again, um, verse 9, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Um, the angels show up. Now, with that one angel, a whole host appeared, verse 13, suddenly there appeared with that angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The angelic chorus. Now, I don't want to overly insert dramatization here, but man, I have a sneaky suspicion that those angels, uh, they were fighting to be a part of that chorus. I mean, here was their God, the great Jehovah warrior, the, the Lord of hosts, the second person of the Trinity. And he steps from his throne in glory and becomes fully human. He is going to enter the womb of a woman. He's going to be a zygote. He's going to be a fetus. He's going to be in that womb for nine months and then be delivered in a stable amongst the animals by insignificant people. And the angels had to just be, say, what? Hey, I need, uh, I need, a, I need a heavenly host to go down tonight when Jesus is born. Man, I'll, I'll, hey, put me in that course. i got to see this thing. You know, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 about our, our great salvation. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of the Messiah, the Christ within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories to come. The sufferings of Christ, the the degradation, the humility, becoming a, a slave, being born of a woman, living on earth, subjected to all the, the pains of life, and then being crucified, the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories to follow. He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he adds this little line, Things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. It was mind-boggling to the messengers of God, the angelic hosts, what was transpiring. God was becoming fully human. He was identifying himself totally with humanity. I mean, he just didn't step from the throne of glory and 
and shoved Caesar Augustus out of the way and says, I'm king and this is how it's going to happen. Well, he wraps himself up in, in humble beginnings. And the angels longed to look into this. The king of kings, born in a manger. Who else is in this story? Look at verse 10. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel, and it's great joy, which will be for all the people. It shall be for all the people. Who's Luke referring to? The people. He's referring to the Jewish people. Who else is in this story? Who else factors in? Israel. Israel factors into the story. Gabriel, in the chapter before, in chapter 1, had announced to Mary uh, she was going to bear the Christ child. Behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Great joy for all the people. This is the coming Messiah. This is the fulfillment of what the prophets had talked about. This is the king of the Jews. This is their Messiah who was coming into the world. It is for all these Jewish people. Israel can rejoice, say the angels, because their Messiah had come. But as we read earlier, as John 1, 11 says, he came to his own, and his own, they did not receive him. So we have the people at the top end of the ladder. You got the Caesar Augustus and the Quirinius. You got the lowly peasants of Joseph and Mary, you've got the even lowlier people, the shepherds with the angelic realm. What a collage of people that night that Jesus was born. But it doesn't stop there. For when that entire angelic host showed up, they began praising God, and verse 14 says, this is what they sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and throughout the earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This joyful message says the angelic host is not just for Joseph and Mary, it's just not for the shepherds, it's just not for Israel. It's for anyone to whom God shows his grace. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, or free, anyone of any age down through the ages, anyone who ex experiences God's mercy and grace, great joy upon the earth. What an amazing story. Such rich diversity of the, the people involved, an amazing account, powerful Caesars, a peasant couple, a lowly, lowly shepherds, a heavenly choir of angels, a collage of all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life, but they all had one thing in common. 
The thing they all had in common is that they all needed the most important person in this narrative. And that was the baby. They all needed Jesus. They all needed a Savior. As the angel had said to Joseph in the Matthew narrative, you shall call his name Jesus, for he is the one who will save his people from their sins. No wonder the passage ends there in verse 19 with Mary treasuring all these things and pondering them in her heart. What an amazing story. A story that we really can't wrap our minds around. It's too wonderful. It's too amazing. It's too shocking. There's, there, there's someone else in this story. It's maybe a bit hidden. But that other person in this story is you. It's me. For Jesus himself said, I came into the world to seek and save the lost. I came in the world for sinners. And that's you. And that's me. The Apostle Paul put it this way, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. We're in this story because when Jesus stepped from his throne in glory and he entered that manger, that Cataluma with his parents in that manger scene and came and was birthed by a woman, um, he had us in mind. God so loved the world, he gave his son. And just as Mary pondered these things and treasured them in, his, in her heart, I would invite you this week to do the same. Um, this is my 66th Christmas. Or is it my 67th? I don't know. A lot of them. I grew up in a Christian home and you know, the story of Jesus and the birth and, you know, I did the Christmas programs in the church when I was growing up as a kid. Why, it can get old hat, can it? It's a busy week coming up. Not many more shopping days to Christmas. The grandkids are coming. It's going to be bedlam. I don't know what it'll be like in your house, but it's a fun bedlam, but it's, it's bedlam nonetheless. And there's food to prepare and there's the busyness and all the gift wrapping that has to be done and unless you're smart and you just do gift cards. But if you do, I wouldn't want to be a part of your family. <laughs> but in all the craziness of this coming week, let's not lose sight of an incredible, amazing thought God became a man. The angels are elbowing themselves to get in this heavenly chorus just to, just to look upon this, to be a part of this singing glory to God in the highest. God came for me. I didn't deserve his love. 
Not a person in this room, in this world, that deserves that kind of love. Amazing love, how can it be that God would come and die for me? Let's not lose the wonder of the story amidst all the, the busyness of the, of, the, of the event of the day. My wife Lisa was talking yesterday with her little seven-year-old granddaughter, Olivia. And Olivia's on the phone and she says, Grandma, Christmas is almost here and it is so exciting. <laughs> well, there was probably other reasons why it was all exciting, but it was Christmas. It's the birth of Jesus. We need to be like little children again, excited about the fact that God became a man. And he did it because of love. And everyone who puts their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their Savior experiences the wonder and the glory of the truth that God came and became a man so that he could die and pay for our sins. And all who put their faith in him receive a free gift, the free gift of eternal life. From kings to lowly peasants, Shepherds and angelic choruses. Jesus is the main focus. He is the light of the world. He is our Savior. Let's treasure this in our heart this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your amazing love would send your son into this world. We will never fully understand nor appreciate how and why you did that. Um, we live, though, um, with the benefits of it. People who have put their trust in you have a relationship with you for all of eternity. The receiving end of your everlasting, unfathomable love with whom we will spend all eternity with. All because of the wonder of Christmas. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.